Today on Categorical Imperatives, we are going to be taking a look at some more legal responses to sovereign citizen myths. Hey, greetings and welcome back once again to Categorical Imperatives. As always, I am your host, Lockheed Liberal, and I do want to thank you all so much for being here with me today. Uh, now, if you are new to the program, I want to welcome you. This is a podcast where we are going to be using legal theory and moral philosophy to discuss current events related to law, politics, and culture. Uh, and as I alluded to uh, just a second ago, uh, today we are going to be dealing with another topic related to uh, sovereign citizens. And this time, we are going to be looking at uh, different structures and jurisdictions of various areas of law. Uh, sovereign citizens have a number of different beliefs about our legal system. Uh, and as I said last time, it's really hard to pin down what it is they believe exactly because, again, as we discussed last time, sovereign citizen is really more of a catch-all phrase for many different groups of people who actually have a very wide-ranging set of views that all revolve around a uh, a common notion that they believe that they have found some secret meaning hidden in our laws that means they are not subject to our laws. So to briefly give you uh, some idea of uh, sovereign citizen beliefs uh, with our court system, uh, one belief is that they uh, think that all courts are really courts of admiralty jurisdiction instead of common law courts. And uh, lest you think I exaggerate here, uh, here is an example of a Real Sovereign, trying that legal voodoo that they do do. Conference. Uh, sir, is this an admir uh, maritime admiralty law courtroom that we're uh, processing me through? No, it's not. This is not a maritime admiralty law courtroom. I believe so. No. It is. Absolutely, it is. All courtrooms in this country are maritime admiralty law courtrooms that process people, aren't they? No, sir. That's false information. Well, either way. Now, much like the last video, I do intend to make this a serious and sincere legal response to the sovereign citizen movement's claims. Uh, but I do, when I see stuff like that, I do have to wonder if they've ever noticed that they always seem to think they look like some kind of sort of like a pro se Perry Mason, and they always wind up just looking like a Lionel Hutz. And so, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I rest my case. Hmm. Mr. Hutz, do you know you're not wearing any pants? What? Ah! I move for a bad court thingy. You mean a mistrial? Yeah. That's why you're the judge and I'm the law-talking guy. The lawyer. Right. The foreman will pass the verdict to the bailiff. This verdict is written on a cocktail napkin. And it still says guilty. And guilty is spelled wrong. Eat. So anyways, last time uh, I discussed why it is that they think this, uh, and it is because they think that anytime a court has a gold-fringed plague in it, that secretly signals that you are under admiralty jurisdiction. Now, in this episode, uh, I am going to be talking about what admiralty law actually is, as well as what common law is, uh, and how one can identify which one of these systems of law you are being tried under. Now, another sovereign citizen belief uh, is 
uh, that the only kind of valid law is common law and constitutional law, meaning statutes are not really law and they are not really valid uh, or binding. Uh, and so today we are also going to be talking about the differences between common law and statute and explaining the place that each of these plays in our modern court system and why statutory law has, as a matter of fact, always been a valid part of our common law since its very inception in 12th century England. Now, another odd belief uh, is that uh, the Constitution is valid law and statutes are not. We won't so much be getting into that today. Uh, this is just an equally absurd belief uh, because uh, besides the fact is that I will show you statutes have always been a part of uh, common law, uh, the Constitution grants Congress the power to make laws. Uh, so what was the point of putting Article 1 in the Constitution and establishing a federal legislature under the Constitution if there is no constitutional authority to legislate? So anyways, today we are going to be discussing all of these different areas of law. We're going to be talking about common law. Uh, we're also going to be talking about civil code and civil law. We are going to be talking about admiralty law. Uh, we are going to be talking about the uh, different areas these laws entail, and we also need to understand uh, the structure uh, to ultimately understand which of these various courts have jurisdiction over these various kinds of law. Now, I just want to remind you guys real quick here before we get going, um, I did recently uh, open up a funding page for uh, this program. Now, if I uh, you are able to put your financial support behind the show. There's a number of things I would like to do. Uh, first of all, is really kind of trying to make sure I'm uh, censorship resistant, which means uh, getting my content hosted uh, uh, really on other places besides YouTube. So getting a domain name, getting a secure server. There's some other things I would like to do to make the show better. So if you got a couple bucks and you can give a, either a one-time donation through the Venmo, or you can give a one-time or a monthly donation uh, through PayPal, you can scan the QR codes on the screen, or you can uh, simply uh, go to the address there that you see, the PayPal uh, link. Uh, so either way, if you can do that, it would be very helpful. If not, that's fine too. So anyways, enough whoring myself out. Let's get to the main topic here today. So, uh, yeah, as I said, we have to understand uh, the various jurisdictions uh, of various areas of law. So this is an outline of exactly what we're going to be covering here today. We are going to be talking about the state and federal court structure. Uh, we won't be covering constitutional law or regulatory law in detail, partly because they weren't requested by the viewer who suggested this topic to me, uh, but also because uh, while they are Certainly important areas of law, they also really don't fit in in a major way to what we will be talking about here. I'll, I'll be touching on them, but they're really not going to be a focus, but they are very important. I just wanted to put that out there. Uh, but we will be going into depth in on what common law is, on what civil law and civil code is, on admiralty law, uh, and I will be uh, briefly be discussing a legal doctrine that is known as jurisdictional hooks, and then I have a quick summary uh, to kind of finish the show out. And by the end of the episode, you will have all the information necessary to understand virtually the whole of the American legal system. Uh, to start, something I'm sure we all understand is that our government is a federal government with federal courts. So there is uh, the federal court system and the state court system, and the power is divided between these two. This means 
wherever you are, you are subject to more than one system of law. Uh, at any time, you can always be subject to local ordinances, state laws, and federal laws. Uh, though it's worth noting that uh, municipal laws and local ordinances do not exist independently, uh, all city and county laws derive their power to make law from a state government. However, we do always have concurrent jurisdictions of law everywhere you go in the U.S. So let's look at basic court structure. So the federal court system and the state court system have a virtually identical structure. Uh, that is, both state and federal court systems have a structure starting with trial courts, uh, with an intermediate appellate court, and a court of last resort. Now, there is an easy way to tell them apart. Uh, even if the source you uh, are hearing mention them doesn't specifically designate between state or federal directly. Now, I realize I probably could have made this uh, uh, flowchart uh, a, a little easier than I did. Uh, I, I did this for two reasons. Uh, first of all, is because I, I think it's important to understand that, that though I'm trying to uh, make this as simple as I can for you guys, uh, there is a lot of very complex stuff to understand uh, beneath this. And so I don't want to give you an impression that everything is is just really simple. And so I wanted to uh, use this one uh, rather than uh, something like more of a simple flow chart with uh, chevrons. Um, but uh, that's also partially because I am very much opposed to chevron deference. Uh, no one's going to get that. All right. Anyway, so... Um, what you see here, if you look at the arrows on the bottom there, there is a gray arrow and a white arrow. And the gray arrow uh, shows uh, cases involving uh, a state court and the system that they go through. And they will always be referred to by the basic terms that I just used to describe the basic court structure. So if someone says trial court or appellate, appellate court, it is safe to assume that they meant state courts. Uh, then there are state Supreme Courts, which are... Uh, usually specifically designated as the state supreme court. Uh, they are sometimes called superior courts, but uh, that's pretty rare. Um, so anyways, now, if you look at uh, the white arrow, that is cases involving federal laws. Uh, and I created the, the little side where, where you see the, the flow chart with two lines going up. That is kind of the path that we want to follow here to understand the way federal courts work for the vast majority of people, the vast majority of time. So in the federal courts, the trial courts uh, are referred to as district courts. And the federal appellate courts are called circuit courts or sometimes alternately known as circuit courts of appeals. And then at the top, we have the Supreme Court, which is most commonly referred to as the U.S. Supreme Court. However, when someone simply uses the term Supreme Court without designating state or U.S., it generally can be assumed that they are talking about the uh, U.S. Supreme Court. This is not a hard and fast rule, but this is just generally speaking, that is the way that people use these terms. So within each of these jurisdictions, we have different kinds of law. Now, the place most people think of when they think of a kind of law is constitutional law derived from the U.S. Constitution. And the Constitution uh, sets out the system of the federal government and has a number of things to say about defining the relationship between 
uh, federal and state governments. And then below uh, the Constitution, we have federal statutes and regulations. Uh, statutes means all legislation passed by Congress. And we also have regulations. Uh, we have various forms of regulation, and in particular, the federal government. Uh, this usually means federal agencies, which are executive agencies in particular, like the EPA or the FDA. And these agencies are part of the executive branch, but they get their delegated power from Congress. Congress provides a framework, giving them power over this or that from a particular statute or enactment uh, that will give them power to pass certain regulations for certain measures. And then below that, we have common law. Uh, however, uh, because uh, federal courts are courts of limited jurisdiction, and we'll get to what that means later, that means that you really only, the only time you have common law uh, is, is it exists as a distinct body of law in federal courts is where specific aspects of common law have been directly incorporated into the federal court system. There is no federal general common law. The only common law that really does exist in federal courts uh, are areas of common law that have been, uh, again, as I said, delegated by the federal government uh, in the Constitution, uh, which is uh, the two that most people will be somewhat familiar with are admiralty law and bankruptcy law. Now, uh, as the state legal system, you actually have the exact same structure replicated on the state level. So you start with a state constitution. And each state constitution defines the size and structure of the government for that state. It defines the powers of the legislature of the state and defines many other things about the state, including what rights those states recognize as a matter of its own constitutional law. Now, uh, apart from uh, the law of the U.S. Constitution, uh, we also have, uh, excuse me, uh, of the apart from the law of the state constitution, we also have state statutes, which are enacted by state legislatures. And we have regulations, uh, which just like on the federal level, are promulgated by the executive branch agencies pursuant to a delegation of rulemaking authority from the legislature. And uh, all states have adopted their own forms of a general common law, uh, with one notable exception, namely Louisiana, uh, whose general law are actually based on the Napoleonic Civil Code. We will be getting to that more later, I assure you. But for now, uh, let's get a clear understanding of precisely what we mean when we talk about sources of law. Uh, and let's start with common law. Now, there are many misconceptions about what common law is in popular culture, and because of these misconceptions, uh, they are widespread among actually most people uh, outside the legal profession. Uh, so by the time you really get to a sovereign citizen's misinterpretations of the common law, they are generally based on misinterpretations that most people outside the legal profession have. So the sovereign citizen view of common law quickly becomes an absurd caricature of a caricature. Now, in popular cu culture, common law connotes laws based on ancient, unwritten, universal customs of the people. This view was uh, not uh, uncommon until really the foundations of the common law began to be dealt with in a more uh, in-depth way. 
by the first great legal treatises on the subject, which were written by the great English jurist Edward Cook and William Blackstone. However, uh, this view does not accord with the facts of the origin and the growth of the law. Now, common law, as the term is used by legal professionals in the present day, is not grounded in custom or ancient usage. Common law acquires force because it is pronounced by a court or similar tribunal in an opinion. Common law is not frozen in time, and you are no longer beholden to 11th or 13th or, century, or 17th century English law. Rather, the common law evolves daily and immediately as courts issue precedential decisions Common law is not, as many people assume, a retrospective form of law is, is in fact decidedly prospective. Now, the common law, again, as I said, is not unwritten. Uh, common law does exist in writing, as must any law that is to be applied consistently. That is the only way it can be applied consistently is through the written decisions of judges. So common law is not the product of universal consent as some people leaves. Rather, common law is often very much anti-majoritarian. And this is not, as you will hear claimed by sovereign citizens, a revisionist history of common law, but this is consistent with the common law going right back to its very foundations at the time of the Norman Conquest uh, of 1066, with William I, uh, also known as William the Conqueror, who uh, began almost immediately by establishing what was known as the Curia Regis, or King's Court. Now, English common law began bringing together acts of parliament with judge-made law from the outset. In 1154, Henry I institutionalized common law as a unified system, eliminated, eliminating arbitrary uh, remedies, and reinstating the jury system. Next, Henry II established the first circuit courts. These were known as the Aziz courts. These were essentially itinerant justices who would resolve disputes based on interpretations of law and custom and return to London to convene and discuss their cases uh, and decisions with other judges. And these decisions would be recorded and filed. Over time, a common rule would develop. This was known as stare decisis, at which point future judges would be bound by those established rules adopted uh, by earlier judges' interpretation of the law, uh, and you would be compelled, or, or bound is a better word, to apply the same principles. Now, around the time we split from England, the common law was a body of law that was uh, a kind of common heirloom that the people of America had brought with them when they began to uh, set up colonial governments. Of course, of course, um, aspects of the common law then informed so many aspects of the daily lives of the colonists, uh, from tort to contract to property law, real estate, and ordinary criminal law, uh, such as uh, the common law's protections of defendants who are faced with accusations of crimes. Now, a large body of judge-made law that came from England, uh, and, but then, as now, under the common law, uh, 
even if the rules and regulations were developed by the courts, they were always subject to change or abrogation or modification by Parliament itself. Parliament has ultimate control over the common law because Parliament represented in England and still represents, it still present tense to, the will of the people themselves. In fact, something few people understand is that in England, uh, sovereignty actually lies with Parliament. Yeah. If you don't believe me, the great English jurist himself, William Blackstone, went so far as to say in his commentaries on the law of England, sovereignty and legislature are indeed convertible terms. One cannot subsist without the other. So rules then that developed under common law reflected the idea that the government, when it sits and reflects, sits as the people themselves. These common law rules that showed so much deference to parliament that rules of common law in England included sedition, or the right to punish people for criticizing or interfering with the operations of government. Now, the reason why these rules were there is, of course, that government in a parliamentary system represented the people themselves. So to criticize the crown or to criticize parliament, you were actually criticizing the people of England. That wasn't the way rules and ideas developed under the American system. Under the American system, the people represented their will, not through the operations of government, but through a written constitution. The people uh, stood uh, apart and stood as judges over their government. That meant there had to be new rules when it came to laws regarding defamation and freedom of speech. Common law rules and methodologies that might be appropriate in parliamentary systems were clearly not going to. Uh, map onto what was happening under the American system. So, what to do with the common law? There was uh, this was actually a matter of great struggle and debate in the early in the early decades uh, of the American Constitution. Now, there were some members uh, during the founding who were actually quite comfortable with the idea of common law mapping onto American constitutional law and the interpretation of the American Constitution. But, unfortunately, there were others like uh, James Madison and the first great constitutional treatise writer, St. George Tucker, who actually claimed that the common law needed to be carefully deconstructed and put back together again with an eye towards the peculiar ideas of American popular sovereignty. Some rules of the common law would still continue to work just fine. Other rules would not. The primary example of the problems of the common law and how it mapped onto the American system would be, as I just touched on a moment ago, the rules of sedition and the ability to criticize one's government without being hauled into court and thrown into jail for interfering with the will of the people themselves. Now, when Congress passed the Alien and Sedition Act in the late 1790s, uh, the support and the justification for those laws was the common law, the idea that one should not be able to criticize the government sitting as the people's representatives. And so to interfere or to somehow undermine the people's support in the government was actually quite dangerous under a common law system with a royal sovereign. In the American system, as argued by James Madison and Thomas Jefferson, precisely the opposite rule needed to apply. There was nothing more important than the people being able to criticize and even undermine the authority of the current government 
because that's how elections should work. The people should be able to change their government and make sure their government were following the will of the majority and, most of all, were following the will of the people themselves as written into the American Constitution. So, freedom of speech under the American context simply could not be mapped on to the rules of the common law and common law sedition as it had developed in England. And this was a flashpoint for the need to change the rules of the common law and come up with new ideas and new interpretive measures that would preserve liberty uh, as Americans had come to know liberty. Now, it is crucial to understand that the common law uh, and a common law legal system are related but distinct concepts. Common law refers to a body of law derived from judicial decisions as opposed to statutory law derived from legislative enactments and regulatory law, which is promulgated by executive branch agencies pursuant to a delegation of rulemaking authority from the legislature. So this connotation of common law can be further differentiated into general common law, which is the original common law as it had always existed uh, essentially in England that arose from the uh, traditional and inherent authority of the courts to define what the law is in the absence of an underlying statute or regulation. Uh, this form of common law was prevalent in the United States criminal law and in procedural law prior to the 20th century, uh, and, and it can still be found uh, today uh, mostly in state courts in areas of law such as contract law, property law, uh, the law of torts, and restitution. Now here is one specific example of general common law that many people today will be very familiar with. So, for example, if you are driving uh, and you're at an intersection and you have a collision with another car, now you may well get sued or you may well uh, choose to sue the other person for damages arising from that car accident. And in most states, you will be bringing a claim of negligence. The court, in deciding that case, is not going to be looking for any statute. It's going to be deciding the case based on prior cases decided by that state court with similar claims of negligence under the common law of torts. This form of common law is a creature of adjudication that predates our founding. Now, a broader example of general common law in uh, the United States comes from reception statutes. Now, a reception statute is a statutory law adopted by a former British colony when it becomes independent by which the new nation adopts, uh, i.e. receives, pre-independence common law to the extent not explicitly rejected by the legislative body or constitution of the new nation. So reception statutes generally consider the English common law dating prior to independence uh, and the precedent originating from it as the default law uh, because of the importance of using an extensive and predictable body of law to govern the conduct of citizens and businesses in new states. So all U.S. states, uh, which with the uh, single exception of Louisiana, have uh, implemented reception statutes or have adopted common law through judicial opinion. Now, things get more complex when it comes to federal common law. This is embodied in a separate delineation from general common law. This is known as interstitial common law. Now, where court 
decisions analyze, interpret, and determine the fine boundaries and distinctions in law promulgated by other bodies. The body of common law, sometimes called interstitial common law, includes interpretation of the Constitution, of legislative statutes, of agency regulation, and of the application of law to specific facts. So the common law legal system, as I said, uh, is a related but distinct concept uh, and is best understood in contradistinction to a civil code legal system. This distinction of common law and civil code legal systems defines the difference between the 49 states that adopted common law jurisdiction and Louisiana in its adoption of civil law jurisdiction. So common law systems place great weight on court decisions, which are considered, for all intents and purposes, law with the same force of law as a statute. Now, for nearly a millennium, common law courts have had the authority to make law where no legislative statute exists, and statutes mean what courts interpret them to mean. By contrast, in civil law jurisdictions, which uh, is the legal tradition that prevails in Europe uh, and most non-Islamic, non-common law countries in the world, the courts lack the authority to act if there is no statute. So civil law tends to give less weight to judicial precedent, which means that a civil law judge deciding a given case has more freedom to interpret the text of a statute independently compared to a common law judge in these same circumstances and therefore uh, less predictably. So, for example, the Napoleonic Code has expressly forbade French judges to pronounce general principles of law. The role of providing overarching principles, which in common law jurisdiction is provided in judicial opinions, in civil law jurisdiction is filled by giving greater weight to scholarly literature. Now, what we have discussed so far, I believe, gives you an uh, accurate enough uh, picture of uh, the common law to at least fulfill the purposes of this video. Now, believe it or not, we have actually barely scratched the surface of common law. Uh, it does get exponentially more comprehensive and more complex. And uh, I'll just say, if anyone out there would be interested in a video covering advanced common law, I would be happy to oblige. Um, personally, I find this topic fascinating, but I imagine that, uh, you know, I already start to sound a little bit like... Uh, Ned Flanders sounded to Homer when he was describing jury duty. I'll have to go off on vacation when I get called up for jury duty. Oh, it's a corker of a case. Seems a man drove up onto a traffic island and hit a decorative rowboat full of geraniums. Mm. Now, they're trying it as a maritime offense. But, well, so, so uh, but essentially, what I would say is, uh, if a couple of people want to leave a comment below on this video, or you can email me, categoricalimperatives at gmx.com, uh, and ask for a uh, video in the future on uh, advanced common law. This is something I would be happy to oblige. Next up, we have civil code and civil law. So, 
This is actually a concept that has three completely different meanings, which are all applicable to U.S. law. Now, while, differ while differentiating which of the three definitions being used in any given context can be tricky, uh, trying to understand what they mean once you differentiate them is actually pretty self-explanatory. First uh, is the civil law legal system, uh, which is what I just defined. This is a body of law. Uh, that stands in uh, contrast to common law. And I would add uh, that just like with common law system, just like common law systems trace their history to England, uh, civil law system trace their history back through to the uh, to two places, to the Napoleonic Code and then back to the Corpus Juris Civilis of Roman law. And second, civil law can be defined in contradistinction to criminal law. Whereas criminal law deals with an individual's offense against the state, um, essentially meaning breaking a criminal law established by government. On the other hand, civil law deals with disputes between one entity and another. So the cause of action in a civil law case can be initiated by private as well as public parties and can be brought against private as well as public parties. So when someone talks about civil law, uh, this meaning is the one that they are most likely referencing. And the third meaning of the term civil law uh, is used in a, as, as is used in a common law legal system is to denote the difference between statutes and codes. Now, in theory, codes uh, conceptualized in the civil law system uh, should go beyond the compilation of discrete laws or discrete statutes. And instead, uh, state the law in a coherent and comprehensive piece of legislation, sometimes introducing major reforms or starting anew. In this regard, civil law codes are more similar uh, to the restatements of the law, uh, such as the Uniform Commercial Code, code uh, which drew from European inspiration, uh, and the Model Penal Code in the United States. And in the United States, U.S. states began uh, codification uh, with New York's 1850 Fields Code, which was laying down civil procedure rules uh, that were inspired by European and Louisiana codes. Now, other examples like the uh, Federal Revised Statutes uh, started in 1874 and our current uh, United States Code started in 1926, which are, these are really essentially more like a compilation of statutes, which is uh, very different than a systematic exposition of law akin to a civil law code. And finally, uh, we are going to be talking about admiralty law. Now, this is an especially interesting area of law, um, at least as it pertains to, uh, at least as it pertains to this video, uh, because the way uh, sovereign citizens view admiralty law is really kind of uniquely uh, detached from reality. Really, even compared to other sovereign citizen legal theories, 
this one kind of tends to stand out. Several of the most common sovereign citizen ad, uh, admiralty theories are, uh, such as uh, one that admiralty law is military law, and military law is martial law. So they essentially think that admiralty law, military law, and martial law are all the same thing, despite the fact that these are all entirely, entirely different areas of law, really not even related to each other. Uh, next, uh, as we discussed before, is that the gold fringe on a flag in a courtroom denotes a court of admiralty law. Another one, as you just heard a gentleman claim a moment ago, is that literally every court in the country operates under admiralty law. Just one moment. Mr. Grebel, remove your hat in my courtroom. I do not recognize the authority of a court that hangs the gold fringe flag. A flag with gilded edges is the flag of an admiralty court. An admiralty court signifies a naval court-martial. I cannot be court-martialed twice. That is all. Furthermore, bailiff, gag him. Duh. This must be a tight. And uh, also that admiralty court uh, is commonly believed by sovereign citizens to somehow be the opposite of a common law court. Essentially, in admiralty law, you are guilty until proven innocent, whereas in common law, and, and as opposed to common law, where you win by arguing the facts, they think that in admiralty law, if you argue the facts, that is proof that you are guilty. Now, I briefly mentioned admiralty law in my last video, where I clarified uh, that the uh, that contrary to the sovereign myth that the gold fringe flag in a court does not establish admiralty jurisdiction, nor does it inform you that you are in a court that is an admiralty court. Uh, in that video, I said I would, uh, in my next video, I would uh, substantiate those claims, which I didn't have time to do then, and also explain how admiralty jurisdiction does function in the United States. Uh, so let's start with those particular claims. Now, what's interesting is that I, I actually believe I very recently uh, identified the kernel of truth underlying most sovereign citizen uh, theories on admiralty law. Um, I'm actually pretty sure that they are conflating uh, admiralty law as it exists uh, in our country uh, uh, under the, the Constitution um, with another completely different body of law. Uh, and this is what is known as the law of the seas. This is actually a form of international law. Now, International Admiralty Law, uh, and namely with the Law of the Seas, which is drafted by the UN, uh, I think I found where they are, where where they are getting this kernel of truth that they turn into thinking uh, a a flag in a courtroom must represent Admiralty Law, and that comes from uh, from the Law of the Seas, uh, and specifically Article ninety one and ninety two. And when you take these together, essentially what they tell you is that uh, the ship's flag on a ship on the high seas determines the source of law. So, for example, a ship flying the American flag in the Persian Gulf would be subject to American admiralty law. And a ship flying a Norwegian flag in American waters would be subject to Norwegian law. But the ship must be flying the flag legitimately. 
Now, this should go without saying, but for clarity's sake, uh, uh, such international laws exist entirely outside our admiralty laws. Uh, that is, so, anyways, yeah, that should be obvious, though. Anyways, as I said, admiralty law is a distinct body of law. Uh, it is both, substan both substantive and procedural, and uh, it governs uh, negotiations and shipping. And uh, the courts and Congress seek to create a uniform body of admiralty law, uh, and they've done this uh, through the federal courts that have derived exclusive jurisdiction over this field of law uh, through Article 3, uh, Section 2, Clause 1 of our Constitution, which reads, The judicial power shall extend to all cases of admiralty and maritime jurisdiction. So, admiralty law in the United States developed from the British admiralty courts present in most of the American colonies. Now, these courts function separately from courts of law and equity. Uh, in the English tradition, then, admiralty jurisdiction did not reach land or uh, inland waters, such uh, which were subject to the common law. Thus, it, it, this kind of interesting side note, when England uh, was enforcing the Stamp Act in 1765, uh, part of what they were doing was trying Americans uh, through admiralty courts, and the colonists rebelled against this because they were losing their uh, really inestimable common law right to a trial by jury because admiralty and maritime cases uh, typically involve bench trials. Now, during the Revolution, uh, maritime states exercised their own admiralty jurisdiction, and the Articles of Confederation, interestingly, uh, sort of the Constitution before the Constitution, to, to oversimplify it, uh, divided admiralty jurisdiction between states and the United States. However, our Constitution uh, gave the national government exclusive admiralty and maritime jurisdiction. And really, in Philadelphia, the only debate among the framers of the Constitution was whether to lodge admiralty questions in a separate court or, or as they finally decided, in the federal judiciary. So uh, there actually was unanimity even among the Anti-Federalists, that this power should be strictly national. Now, Admiralty Law covers two basic areas, uh, and this comes from the Law of Torts and Contracts. The first is damage to ships and cargo on the high seas, uh, as well as torts and injuries uh, and crime, or contracts and activities bearing on shipping, transport, and cargo on the sea. Now, it was obviously the founding uh, generation that the federal courts, uh, it was obvious to the founding generation that the federal courts would be applying a pre-existing body of maritime law that was to be observed by most maritime nations. Uh, and in fact, both John Adams and Alexander Hamilton practiced admiralty law in their private practice. Now, according to uh, Chief Justice John Marshall, uh, not the first uh, chief justice, but the first really kind of famous one, I guess you could say, uh, if you don't count John Jay, but who does? Um, 
maritime cases, uh, according to John Marshall, uh, maritime cases uh, before federal courts uh, do not arise under the Constitution or laws of the United States as much as they are old, they are as old as navigation themselves. And that uh, is dicta from a 1828 case uh, known as American Insurance Company versus uh, 356 Bowls of Cotton Canter. Now, Congress, under the Judiciary Act of 1789, gave the district courts exclusive jurisdiction over admiralty and maritime cases. Uh, and this is now codified, uh, the, I should say, the Judiciary Act of 1789 uh, is now codified uh, under Title 28, and specifically uh, the sections that relate to admiralty and maritime cases are codified specifically uh, in 28 U.S.C. Uh, sections 1333. So the Admiralty Clause also accords exclusive federal jurisdiction uh, to captures and prize cases, uh, and this is uh, specifically codified at 28 U.S.C. section 1333, subsection 2, uh, and for precedent on this, you can see the case of Glass versus the Sloop Betsy is a 1794 case, uh, or uh, the uh, Port Coy uh, Habana, a case from 1900. Now, much of admiralty jurisdiction deals with torts, uh, injuries, and prize cases, including shipwrecks uh, and the like. Now, parties subject to admiralty may not uh, contract out of admiralty jurisdiction, and states may not infringe on admiralty jurisdiction either judicially or legislatively. Since admiralty courts, however, are courts of limited jurisdiction, uh, this means that admiralty jurisdiction does not extend to any non-maritime matter. So, substantively, Congress has tried to make room for the application of the state's common law, uh, and this has created line-drawing difficulties for the courts. Uh, the Judiciary Act of 1789 uh, created an exception known as the Savings Clause, uh, which defers to the state's common law's jurisdiction. Uh, the Savings Clause reads that savings to suitors in all cases the right of a common law remedy where the common law is competent to give it. And that is currently codified in 28 U.S.C. section 1333, subsection 1, and is defined in the precedent of the case of uh, Waring v. Clark. And the court stated that the purpose behind the savings clause was to preserve the right to a trial by jury, which is a common law right whenever possible. Now, prior to 1875, the Supreme Court exercised appellate jurisdiction over both facts and law in admiralty and maritime suits. And in fact, Justice Joseph Story had argued that was the real goal of the controversial appellate jurisdiction clause in the Constitution, which is found at Article 3, Section 2, Clause 2, uh, and that, as he said, quote, it was to retain the power of reviewing the fact 
as well as the law in cases of admiralty and maritime jurisdiction, end quote. But in an effort to relieve the Supreme Court of a rather uh, cumbersome caseload, Congress has limited appellate review over admiralty and maritime disputes only to issues of law. Now, just as the federal rules of civil procedure placed both law and equity under the same jurisdiction in 1938, uh, an update to the rules in 1966 uh, subsumed admiralty. Nonetheless, the supplemental uh, admiralty rules uh, do take precedent over the federal rules of civil procedure in the event of conflicts between the two. So, uh, if admiralty jurisdiction is uh, neither established nor conveyed by the government's choice of decor in a courtroom, how do you know if you are being tried under admiralty jurisdiction? This is actually fairly easy to find out. You just need to ask yourself two questions. If the answer to both of these questions is yes, the suit is being brought under admiralty. First. Did your case originate in district court? Second, is the legal framework of the case being brought pursuant to either uh, Title 28 of the USC, uh, Section 1333, Title 33 of the United States Code, or Title 46 of the United States Code? Now, understanding how to establish uh, jurisdiction in the way I just did uh, that involves uh, particular cases uh, involves using what is known as a jurisdictional hook um, and essentially involves bringing together uh, three things, a delegated power, an enactment statute, and a particular piece of legislation. Now, jurisdictional hooks are something that I have discussed before in some of my past Today in Supreme Court history videos. Uh, definitely in the uh, video for the 1994 case of U.S. v. Lopez and the 2000 case of Morrison v. Olson. So uh, I only bring this up briefly. I don't have time to get into precisely how to apply the jurisdictional hook in detail uh, here. I just thought it was worth mentioning. If you want to know more about it, you can go check out those other videos, the U.S. v. Lopez and Morrison v. Olson videos. Uh, they're both great videos. I suggest you check them out if you're interested. Uh, but I just also wanted to say that uh, just like with advanced common law, as I talked about a moment ago, if anyone would be interested in videos about uh, a uh, kind of arcane area of law, such as jurisdictional hooks, uh, then I would actually be more than happy to make the video. I, I Again, I am a complete nerd. I'm absolutely fascinated by this stuff. So. Um, if, if you would be interested in a video about that, just like before, if you want to leave a comment below on this video requesting that, or you can send me an email to categoricalimperatives at gmx.com. Let me know if that is something that you would be interested in. Um, and if I get a few responses from you guys, I would be happy to oblige. And now, uh, in closing, really the final point to address uh, in sort of responding to the specific question that I was asked to cover uh, on this topic by the viewer who requested the sovereign citizen-related videos is, do these different types of law have different courts and jurisdictions? 
Uh, and the answer is, it depends. So admiralty courts are courts of limited jurisdiction. Admiralty and maritime cases have original jurisdiction in district courts and exclusive jurisdiction in federal courts. When it comes to civil code, uh, that is its own separate jurisdiction in its own unique court if we are talking about Louisiana state courts. When it comes to administrative law, which is just a fancy word for regulations, they are subject to judicial review in state and federal courts, but because of Chevron deference regulations, they are generally dealt with by administrative law courts uh, that act as courts of limited jurisdiction as well. Though I know we didn't talk about administrative law, it just seemed worthwhile to cover that real quick and get that out of the way. So one example of an administrative law court or administrative law jurisdiction is tax courts. Now, these courts operate under executive branch agencies. However, when it comes to the kinds of law uh, that the vast majority of people out there will ever have to deal with, which is namely public law issues like criminal law and traffic law, or private law issues such as uh, suits at law, suits in equity, uh, as well as uh, you know, common law, contract law, property law, uh, and the law of torts, uh, these are almost entirely will take place in a state court, which are courts of general jurisdiction, which means that these all come together in a mixed court designed to hear all such cases, regardless if the matter is a statute or a uh, common law, whether it is equity or law, and whether it is private or public law. So now you know! Alright, anyways, that is going to do it for me here today. Uh, I do want to thank you all so much for joining me here today on Categorical Imperatives. Uh, I will be having another video coming out soon. Uh, I've got actually one or two more to do uh, covering these various sovereign citizen uh, topics. So I don't know. Uh, I'll probably have one of those out here in the next week. Uh, might do something else to mix it up. I, I don't know yet, but I, I've got plenty more videos in the works uh, and coming soon. And uh, I just wanted to remind you that uh, if you would like to put your financial faith behind the show, I would really appreciate it. And you can uh, go to uh, the links that I provided. I'll provide them here and again for you in a second. Uh, and if not, that's fine too. I'm just really glad that you came here and you took some time uh, to uh, listen to the show today. I appreciate you tuning in. I hope you appreciate it. Uh, if you haven't subscribed to the channel, uh, go ahead and take a second and do that. Uh, and if you have any thoughts on the video or if you have a request for a related topic or a completely different topic and you want to let me know in a comment, uh, you can do that. Uh, and then uh, if you uh, like this video, I just ask that you take a minute and think of one other person you know who you think would also uh, like this video as well. Uh, and just take a moment and uh, send them this video and just share it with them. Uh, and if you would help me grow the show that way, I would truly uh, be grateful for your help with that. Uh, and if you hated the show today, if you could just take a minute and think of someone else you know who would also hate their show. Uh, and just take a moment and send this to them uh, and share the show with them. Uh, because, well, honestly, I'm a masochist and uh, your hate kind of gets me off. So, anyways, uh, until next time, uh, I have been Locking Liberal. 
This has been Categorical Imperatives. Uh, yeah. See you later.